And good morning, church family, and Happy New Year. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians. Book of Colossians, chapter 3, looking at verses 5 through 11 today. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 984. As always, I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we will consider the text together. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to gather together as a church family today. Thank you for giving us safety on the roads as we made our way in. And Lord, we pray that our fellowship here might be sweet. And now as we come uh, around your word, eager to learn, might you be working in our hearts. Use this text to give us a new commitment to wage war against the indwelling sin in our lives. Lord, bless those who are away today because of uh, family trips or because of illness. Lord, we look forward to learning that they are healed and to see them back with us again. Our lives are in your hands, Lord, and so is our church. We commit them all to you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Colossians basically breaks down into two main parts. There's a doctrinal part and a a practical part. And in the doctrinal portion of this book, we learned an important truth. We learned that God has designed the Christian life to roughly parallel the life of Christ. And so Christ physically died and rose again. And in a similar way, we Christians spiritually die and rise. We die to our old lives, and we are raised to a new life in Christ. And in today's text, we learn that with our new life in Christ, there also comes a new mandate. We must put off the sins that characterized our pre-Christian lives. And then we must put on the new virtues of Christ. Now today we're just in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 3, so we'll focus entirely on the first part of that. Next week, we'll look at the second part. But let's turn to verse 5 now and see how the Apostle Paul describes our responsibility. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. In other words, in light of who you are now in Christ, here's what you must do. Put to death the vices that marked your pre-Christian self. This is really graphic language, isn't it? Put it to death. The sins of our old lives are like weeds in a garden or like rodents that have infiltrated our homes. These are active threats to our well-being, and if we just leave them there, they will fester and they will ruin everything. And so we can't let this happen. We must put to death the sins of the old life. Now, what exactly are the sins of the old life? Well, Paul gives us a list in verses 5 and 6. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's representative of the kinds of sins that we probably committed before we came to Christ. So let's look through them uh, one at a time. Number one on Paul's list is this, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Now, the Greek word used here 
is pronounced porneia. It's where we get our English word pornography from. And it's a very broad term encompassing all of our efforts to fulfill our sexual desires outside of the covenant of marriage. So within this one umbrella term, we could include voyeurism, which is pornography, also fornication, adultery, sodomy, orgies, and everything in between. Now, our lives before Christ may have been marked by these things. But now that we've come to faith in Christ, our lives cannot be marked by them any longer. Listen to 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So before we became Christians, this might have been our life. We might have been dominated by, by sexual sins. But Paul says, now that we've come to Christ, we understand this is not the will of God for us. Instead, this is God's will, that we learn self-control, that we learn how to conduct ourselves in an honorable way. And by God's grace, friends, we can learn to do this. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. But then verse 11, he adds this. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So as Paul looked at this church in Corinth, he said, Before you were Christians, your lives were dominated by slavery to sexual sin. He says, but now you're Christians, and that isn't your life anymore. He says, they were washed, they were cleansed, they were sanctified. That means they put those parts of their old life behind them, and now they were learning to live in faithfulness to God. Friends, by the grace and power of God, we can put to death sexual immorality in all of its forms. We can learn to control our bodies. Now let's look at the next three words on Paul's list. He says, put to death sexual immorality, and the next, impurity, passion, evil desire. All three of these terms referring to the the disordered desires inside of our hearts, which would lead us to practice sexual immorality. And the addition of these three terms is, is really important because Paul is communicating to us here that sin is not just an external matter. Okay, it's not just about the the things that we do with our bodies. Instead, sin cuts all the way through us, it reaches right into our very souls. And according to the scripture, the sins we commit with the body are actually just the overflow of what is going on inside of our hearts, those those sinful desires and impulses. Uh, Jesus taught this, for example, in Matthew chapter 15. There Jesus said, what comes out of the mouth precedes from the heart, right? So there is internal sin which produces the external, the visible 
sins. And then James also makes this point in James 1, verses 13 to 15, passage that we read earlier in the service. It says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by sin, and neither does he tempt any man. But rather, each man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. You see, sin isn't just about what we do with our bodies. Sin cuts all the way to the heart. It includes our, our thoughts, our our affections. It includes what we desire, what we value. What we do on the outside is just a manifestation of what's in here. And so when Paul tells us that we must put to death the sins that characterized our pre-Christian lives, he isn't just going to talk about behaviors. He's going to talk about conditions of the heart. And so he says here, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, that's the outward behavior. But then next, impurity, passion, evil desire, those are the internal heart conditions that produced it. We must put it all to death. And by the grace and power of God, we can. We can eliminate not only the actions of the body that are displeasing to God, but even the attitudes and the motions of the soul that would lead us into sin. We can kill both in our lives. Well, then from the lust of the flesh, Paul turns next to the lust of the eyes. Look at the next thing on his list. He says, end of verse 5, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So we must put to death covetousness. Now, what is this? Well, uh, a covetous person uh, is, is a person who craves the gifts that God has given to others. Someone who's not satisfied with their own lot in life, right? But they're, they're constantly wishing they had more. The covetous person is resentful toward God, saying, God, you've been unjust with me. I should have more than I have. Wh- whatever that more might be, more money, more possessions, um, more, more fame, what, whatever it might be. But it's saying, God, you've not been just with me. I deserve more. I'm being denied a good thing. Covetous person looks at resentment at others. If they have success or possessions that we don't have, we loathe them for it. Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. That's because the covetous person is replacing God with his gifts. Instead of God being the greatest love, the gifts of God become our greatest love. We know that because of our attitude when we don't think we have enough. If we really loved God above all things, then we would be grateful for whatever he gave to us. Say, thank you, God, for these gifts. They've come from you. This is what you believe I need. I love you for what you've given me. And then loving God for how he has blessed others, even if he's blessed them more. Covetous person can't do that. They love God's gifts more than God himself. They're idolaters. And so they resent God in others when, they have, when others have more than we do. Now, friends, covetousness may have characterized our pre-Christian lives. Indeed, isn't it true that, that the ungodly so often resent those who seem to be doing better than them? This may have been our, our state as well. But once more, by the grace and power of God, this is a sin that we must put to death. 
There is no place in the church for covetous people. People who resent God as if God has not been good enough to them already. Just to reinforce how serious each one of these vices is, Paul adds this statement in verse 6. He says, On account of these things, that is, the sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, before we were Christians, we probably minimized the, the sins in our lives. may not have even called them sins. We might have, we might have acknowledged that we've, we've made a few mistakes in life, might say we've had some regrets, might even say we've got some bad habits. But we probably didn't identify them as, as offenses against the God who made us. Unfortunately, sometimes even after becoming Christians, we can continue that attitude. We can continue to, to try to justify our behavior or justify the way that, that we are feeling. It's easy for us to minimize our own sins. And so, as Paul explains that we must put these things to death, he wants us to understand why it's so serious to do it. He says, it's because these are the kinds of things that bring God's righteous judgments. That's how God feels about sin. You know, in the days of Noah, God unleashed a global deluge because the people were committing sins like these. Sins like these sent God's Son to the cross. God also promises a future day of judgment in which all who have sinned without repentance will be cast from His presence forever and sent into the abyss. Revelation 20, verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. In other words, as for those who gave themselves over to sin without repentance. As for those, it says, quote, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. So you see, we may take our own sins very lightly, but God doesn't. He's a holy God. He, he radiates with the white light of holiness. And he calls his people to be holy as he is. And so we who have come to faith in Christ and who wish to identify ourselves with the Son of God, we must be putting to death the sins of our old lives. We dare not take our own sins lightly. I think the Puritan minister, John Owen, had it exactly right. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or your sin will be killing you. That's what these passages are teaching us. If we are truly born again, we will wage war against these sins. And we will defeat them. Well, now we come to verses 7 and 8 here. Paul offers us a second list, another five vices that we must put off. He begins this way. He says, In these two you once walked when you were living in them, 
but now you must put them all away. Now here's his second list. Before I get there, it's interesting how Paul kind of changes his metaphor, though. Verse 5, he said, put these things to death. Now he says, put these things away, or in some translations, rid yourself of them. The imagery here now is of filthy garments. So some of you are farmers, some of you are gardeners, so you understand what it's like to have filthy garments. If you're outside all day and you are in the dirt, by the time you, you return to the house, I mean, you are just covered in sweat, your face is filthy, I mean, your clothes are, are, are complete mess. Well, what's the first thing you do when you enter the house? <laughs> or at least what's the first thing your spouse yells at you about, right, when you get into the house? Right? To take off the muddy boots, right? You're inside the house now. You don't belong in these filthy garments, right? Take off the muddy boots, strip off the dirty clothes, go right to the shower, clean off, get on some fresh clothes. What Paul is saying to us here is that, is that when we became Christians, we were welcomed into the household of God, right? We're not outside anymore. We're in his, in his household. In the same way, now the first thing we should be doing is stripping off the filthy garments of the past life. All of the vices that once characterized us, they've got to go now. Take them off. Take that hot shower. Clothe yourself with new, pure garments. Now we turn to the second list. and The first three are these. Middle of verse 8, anger, wrath, malice. Anger, wrath, malice. So notice, God isn't just concerned about sexual sins. He's also concerned about these attitudes of the heart. Anger, wrath, malice. What Paul's talking about here are our sinful tendencies to harbor contempt for other people. Maybe even to the point that we derive pleasure from the thought of their suffering or death. A few years ago, I was counseling with a man, not a part of our church, um, but I was counseling with a man who confessed to me that every day, first thing, he takes out his daily newspaper, opens it up to the obituary section, and he's looking for a picture of his dad. He said he hates his dad, can't wait to see him dead. So every day, he's checking to see if his dad's picture is in there. Friends, that's what Paul is talking about here. There is a righteous form of anger, but there's also a sinful form, and that is the sinful kind. You know, that kind of malice may have characterized our pre-Christian lives, but now that we identify with Christ, we must strip those things off, just like they were a filthy garment. What did Jesus say? The greatest commandment is love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the second greatest? Love your neighbor as yourself. Remember in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he even said, love your enemies. There's no place in the Christian life for harboring contempt toward another image bearer of God. Strip it off. Now, second part of verse 8 here, Paul moves from a hate-filled heart to hate-filled speech. He says, uh, put these all away, anger, wrath, malice, and then slander. Slander is when you lie about another person behind their back in order to ruin their reputation. Next, obscene talk. 
from your mouth. Now, there are three categories of obscene talk. There's taking the Lord's name in vain. There is invoking God's judgments on another person or thing. And then there's just vulgar speech, where you express yourself with completely unnecessary sexual or bathroom references. The problem with all of these forms of speech is that none of them are designed to edify the hearers. Uh, None of them show proper respect to God or others. They don't lead people into the truth. They don't lead people to embrace goodness or beauty. They don't communicate love for God or others. They're just base ways of talking. They're contemptible ways of talking. And so, friends, while our pre-Christian lives might have been dominated by slander and obscene talk, now that we identify with Christ, we must learn to speak like Him. Words that edify. Words designed to build up. And then finally, you'll notice here at the beginning of verse 9, Paul gives us one final standalone vice. He gave us five sins, then another five sins. Now here's a one standalone He says, and do not lie to one another. Here he's talking to the congregation. Now, don't you lie to each other. You know, lying is a way of life for those who do not know Christ. Ungodly politicians will lie to get more votes. Ungodly businessmen will lie to get more sales. Ungodly men and women will lie to enhance their profiles or to hide a crime. Ungodly children will lie to their parents to get out of trouble. It's characteristic of the ungodly that they will be liars. We were liars once. But friends, now that we know Christ, we must not tell lies. Our God is a God of truth. When we embrace the gospel, we embrace the message of truth. And we welcomed into our lives the very embodiment of truth, Christ, who once said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The scriptures refer to the local church as the pillar and buttress of the truth. So how could we be liars We must rid ourselves of dishonesty as we would rid ourselves a soiled garment. Now we come to the end of verse 9 and through verse 11. Here we find the rationale for all of this. Look what he says. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And here, in this new humanity, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, that is really unsophisticated people, or slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now, I discussed this in part at the beginning of my sermon, but let's delve into it a bit more now. What Paul is talking about in these verses is our Christian conversion experience. He's explaining that the moment we embraced Christ in repentance and faith, something really amazing happened to us. 
And the Bible has all kinds of different words and phrases to describe what happened. Uh, John 3 says we were born again. Titus 3, we were regenerated. 2 Corinthians 5, we became new creations in Christ. Colossians 1, we were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, brought into the kingdom of God's Son. All kinds of different ways to describe it, but it's describing the same spiritual reality. The, you know, the very moment that we believed, there was a radical internal transformation such that our hearts, which were once oriented away from God toward the things of the earth, now they are Godward. Everything changed on the inside. Our values, our, our beliefs, our, our desires, they all underwent a transformation. We really were born again. Or we died and were raised to something new. There was also a, a big legal change in our status upon conversion. Before, we were guilty before God. Now we are justified, declared righteous in His sight. You see, our conversion is a big deal. We are leaving behind what we were, and we are stepping into something new. What Paul explains here is that this spiritual transformation needs to be accompanied by a transformation in the way that we live our lives day to day. Our lives are now hidden with Christ in God, and so our conduct from the inside out should be reflective of our new identity. And yet we Christians also live with this tension, don't we? We, we have been transformed in terms of our desire for God, transformed in, in legal status. We are justified before God. Um, and yet, we're not yet glorified, are we? We've not yet attained the full completion of our salvation. And so we live in this tension where we, we desire God and His holiness, but we're not yet morally perfected. And so, so we live in this time where we do still have a sin principle that must be fought against. That's what it is to be a, a Christian uh, at, in, this, in this season of life. It's to be justified, not yet glorified, not to be dominated by the sin principle anymore, but still to have it, still to have the, the remnants of the old nature working inside of us, trying to tempt us to sin like we used to. In fact, that old sin nature that's inside of us, it doesn't just lie there dormant, but it is an active principle. It is laboring within us to bring forth sinful fruit. You know this by experience, don't you? You remember who you were before Christ and then who you became after Christ. You weren't simply zapped into a state of moral perfection, were you? You had a desire to be more like Christ now, but in practice you found it's a, it's a difficult journey. You still got some, some lingering temptations there, and, and you've got a whole lifetime of baggage that you're bringing with you into the Christian life, and you've got that baggage to, to learn how to shed. So it's a battle. Christian life is, is a spiritual war. Left unchecked, our sin natures will ruin everything. 
They're going to be like that weed in the garden that's, that's not addressed. It's going to take over and, and destroy all of the healthy fruit. Or it'll be like the, the rodents left to multiply in your home. It's just going to get worse and worse until that home is uninhabitable. See, we are called to put to death the sins of our old life because if we don't, if we're indifferent to it, it will grow and take over our lives again. We will be re-enslaved to sin. This doesn't have to happen. In fact, it must not happen. It will not happen if indeed we are children of God. See, there are some big differences between who we are now and who we were then. Yeah, we still got the sin principle. It it still wants to manifest itself. But we do have those new desires, don't we? That's a powerful force to give us victory. And more than that, the scriptures say we have the Spirit of God working within us now. And the Spirit is called the Holy Spirit because He is holy and He works holiness in us. We've got the Spirit of God so that we don't have to become enslaved to our old sins. He is pricking our conscience when we are failing Him. He is empowering us to put on the virtues of Christ. We've also got the Word of God, which is helping us to grow in our knowledge of Him so that we might learn how to become more like Him. We have the Church of Christ, this body of believers ready to be positive peer supporters to help us in our spiritual journey. We've got all the resources we need to win the battle. That's why Paul can say to us, put it to death. This is an imperative and it's something you can do by the grace of God because of the new resources that he has given to you. Friends, mortify the sins of your old life. Now the million-dollar question, right? How do we do that exactly? Paul tells us to do it. He doesn't exactly tell us how in today's text. Well, let me offer just a few suggestions to you as I prepare to close. First of all, I think... It begins in our hearts, and it begins by learning to become content individuals. It begins with contentment. In fact, Paul says gratitude with contentment. This is what the gospel should have worked in us already. If we embrace the gospel, it means that we came to the point where we understood our guilt before God, understood that we can do nothing to earn God's favor, that even our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So we just cried out to God, confessed sins, asked Him to, to forgive us, and He did, and He gave us this new life. And then all of the spiritual blessings that come with that. Our default position as Christians should be gratitude with contentment. God, thank you for what you've done for me. I know I didn't deserve any of it. Everything good that comes from your hand, this is pure kindness on your part. That's our default position, should be. And if that's supposed to be our default position, then we've got to learn how to catch ourselves when we're starting to become discontent with an aspect of our lives. Remember how James described the process of sin and how it takes over, right? He said it begins in the heart with the desire for it, and then it moves on to experimentation with it, and then it becomes a habit, and then it enslaves us, and then it kills us. So we want to catch it at the first instance. Here's how a pattern of sin begins. It begins with one area of my life where I am becoming discontent. 
whatever it, whatever it might be. Let's take the first thing on Paul's list here, sexual immorality. How does one become enslaved to sexual immorality? That, that moment of discontentment in the heart where it says, I am not satisfied with what I have right now, either because you're, you're a single and you're abstinent or you're married but you don't think you're getting enough affection from your spouse, whatever it might be. There's a moment where you are discontented with your lot in life at that moment. And you start to think to yourself, God is not giving me what I need. I need to go out there and satisfy it my way. And that's when the experimenting begins. You find ways to dabble in sexual sin, to try to to fill up what you think is lacking in you. And then the experimenting becomes a habit pattern, and the habit pattern then takes over your life. We've got to catch ourselves at the first moment that we are becoming discontent and saying, no, that is not how a Christian lives. Everything that I have in life is God's grace. I've got to be thankful for whatever I have. I've got to trust that His way is the best, even when emotionally I'm not getting it right now. And learn to rest contently in what God has, in the station that God has put you in. It may also help for you to to begin thinking about what would happen if you acted out on those sinful desires. Let's go back to discontentment over matters of sex. Okay, what if I started thinking about, okay, I'll I'll just use myself. What if I allowed my discontentment in that to cause me to start dabbling in new ways to satisfy that desire? And then that became a habit pattern. What do I stand to lose if I do that? Well, I would lose my marriage. I would lose the respect of my son and my daughter. I'd lose all credibility with them. I would certainly lose my ministry. I'd have to find a new job. I stand to lose a whole lot if I say yes to sexual sin. And beyond all of that, I would incur the holy displeasure of God. Might still be be a Christian, might still be saved, but my fellowship is broken with God until that sin is, is repented of. And I don't want to live with any of those consequences. Friends, start to see your sinful temptations the way that God sees them. As weeds in a garden, as rodents multiplying in your home, as, as a soiled garment that you're taking into his house. See them the way he sees them. See the destructive potential of your sin temptation. And then by the grace of God, choose to give no place to it in your life. You will cut it off at the very first level, the level of discontentment. You're going to say, no, I will not be discontent with my lot in life because I believe in the sovereignty of God. This is where he has me right now. And I believe in the goodness of the will of God. And so for me to live in line with his will is the best for me. And I will cut it off right there. That's how you kill sin. Right at the root level, you say, no, I'll not be ungrateful for what I have. I'll not be discontent. I'll not try to see where I can take this temptation. 
And friends, this is what the church is all about. The church is a community of people who have died to their old lives and have been born to a new life. The church is a people at war, at war against their own flesh, war against the devil. They're in a war for their souls. They are waging war against their own sins. The church is a place where old earthly things no longer matter. The sins of the earth, whatever distinctions that people may have had uh, outside of the church, right? Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free distinctions that really meant something out there, none of it means anything in here. What matters to us is Christ. It says, verse 11, Christ is all and is in all. All earthly things are gone. Sins of the past, the distinctions of the past, do away with them. We're a people at war with Christ and for Christ. For the salvation of souls and for our own spiritual growth. Now, so far we've looked at the vices that must be put off. Next week, we'll look at the virtues to put on. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for this text. Help us to learn how to become in practice what we already are in position. That we would become righteous in conduct, not just righteous in standing before you. Help us, Lord, to put to death the the things that are earthly in us. Help, Help us to shed them as we would shed a dirty garment. Help us, Lord, to be a holy church. And then, Lord, use this church as a holy witness to draw others to yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.